Welcome everyone to the B2B Marketing Perspectives podcast. I'm Steve McDonald, your host, and we have on today, John Ewing. Now, John is not only a three-time B2B CMO, spent his entire career in software development, MarTech, went into financial services, a really good wealth of background in the B2B world. But what's most interesting is his perspective on marketing attribution. And in a small facetious way, we want to say, <laughs> hey, CMOs, stop relying on marketing attribution. Now, of course, John, you're going to tell us, right? We, we can't just stop it altogether. Right? <laughs> of but course. There are pros and cons, and, and it's a complicated conversation that we're going to decipher here today. But maybe you can just start out by expanding a little bit on the background, the short background that I gave you there. Mm. Of course. See, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, of course, I don't believe we should scrap attribution. Of course I don't. Um, I, I, the, the point I'm really trying to get to is we can be over-reliant on it, complete, specifically, particularly in a B2B context. I think uh, one of my experiences has been that, that you know, B2B sales is a much more complicated process with a lot more layers, a lot more people involved, and therefore trying to pin success or trying to model backwards to understand which of our marketing materials have been the most influential can be very, very difficult because we're only privy to some of the information from the other side of the of, of the sale process, effectively. So this is a little bit controversial in here, <laughs> right? Because fast forward to where we are today, and we're very data-driven right? And in fact, the idea of the data-driven CMO is well-seated. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all because we have so much data now mm -hmm. that we can attribute, attribute mm -hmm. to all the content, the demand gen strategies, and who's consuming what, mm -hmm. what's driving pipeline. So we get kind of obsessed with it, right? Absolutely. In fact, we kind of wear a badge of honor and like, you know, we are data-driven CMOs. I, I think it'd be very difficult at this at this point to go out and say, I'm not a data-driven CMO. I, I don't think you'd get very many jobs. Uh, and so certainly, you know, again, of course, I, I, you know, data is extremely important to what we do. But I'm, I was always taken by um, something someone once told me was called the McNamara fallacy. And it's the idea that, you know, you start off by being able to measure what you can measure you then begin to only look at those things that you can measure and ignore the things you can't measure. And then you focus only on improving the, 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 the metrics, the KPIs against the data that you can measure. And that can obviously lead you down a path where you're ignoring a lot of things simply because they are unmeasurable. Um, and I think that, that that is a huge risk for a marketer if you become too focused, exclusively focused on the, the things you can actually measure. Why do I say that? Because we know, we all know as marketers that there are many things that we do that are very, very, very difficult to measure. And we try our hardest. We do our best. We, we A-B test and we experiment a great deal with these things. But it's not exactly the same thing as saying, I am able to measure the quality of this copy versus that copy, the effectiveness of this creative versus that creative, the 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 you know the the way the placement of this ad versus this ad has driven more leads or clicks or whatever it may be, you know it, we can do best guesses at that we can we can get close to it but we really can't measure it a hundred percent and I'm really conscious therefore of always being able to step back and use experience as much as using data. 
And that's a very difficult concept, I find, in, in, in many businesses, right? It's tough. I'm not saying this is easy, and I'm not saying we should all immediately throw the data out. Of course I'm not. You know, we are measured in, in you know, 2023 as marketers, like, like any other department, as we should be. You know, we're a, we're a cost center in most businesses. In fact, we're one of the largest cost centers in many businesses. Um, and therefore, being able to show that what we're doing is effective is, is, a, is a vitally important thing to do. But don't confuse that with you know, being able to report back on the, only those things which we're able to measure the data of. There's a, we, we should unpack a lot of that, I'm sure. <laughs> so, so here's what I'm thinking is mm. we're also geared towards trying to be data-driven marketing mm. attribution for everything, right? Mm. Because it's important when we're having conversations with our CFOs. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, allocating budgets it's absolutely when we're in board meetings mm -hmm. and you know investors are are saying what are you doing in order to grow the business mm -hmm. and how do we know that that's going to work mm -hmm. so marketing attribution has its roles what you're saying you also want some wins on the marketing attribution side mm -hmm. right so that the, you can gain credibility with those audiences and say now we're going to do a little bit of experimentation mm -hmm. Right. And I know you've got a, a lot of thoughts on experimentation yeah. in that. And so Absolutely. But, but see, let me let me jump in and, and give a good example, because I think, you know, again, we should we should break this down a little bit. I, you know, I think if we're talking about email marketing, for example, email marketing, we get reasonably good data about open rates. We know it's not as good as it used to be because of the way email clients are evolving. But nevertheless, we get some data. And we can do an A-B test of two different emails and assuming that the, 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 the noise in the data is roughly equivalent on two different campaigns, we're going to be able to do more or less an apples to apples comparison. We can look at click-through rates and we can get really good data about that. And therefore, you know, at, at that level, of course, we can compare two different email campaigns and see which one generated the most clicks. That's that's great. And that's helpful. And of course, we should continue to do that. And we should absolutely do that. And experimentation works brilliantly there. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, something like events. Now, you know, events um, in, in many of the companies I've worked for, the events budget has been the single largest uh, piece of the marketing budget. And in fact, may well be in most in many companies, the single largest OPEX budget out there uh, within the business. And, you know, it, it, it can be hugely expensive. Events are notoriously difficult to be able to measure the, the effectiveness of, right? Uh, you know, if we measure effectiveness as how many leads did I add to the pipeline at a, at a sales qualified level, you know, yep, sure, we can do something. And in some businesses, that will absolutely work. But for many B2B businesses, the sales cycle is very, 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 very long. Um, and simply being able to say, I went to this event, I saw this person, I've added them to the pipeline, you know, it's just not going to be able to do that. I, you know, I once worked for a credit rating agency, one of the, the, the big three credit, you know, uh, financial services, credit rating agencies, debt, debt agencies. And, you know, there, the ability to say, I met so-and-so at an event and, Four years later, we were assigned to do the, the, you know, to do the credit rating on a particular piece of debt, you know, almost impossible to be able to measure the effectiveness of that. But intuitively and, and uh, you know, um, anecdotally, we know that those things are important. We know relationship building is important. We know um, getting a brand in front of someone is important. We know being on stage with other credible companies is important. These are all helping with the brand uh, definition and the, and the, the, the kind of brand scale. Um, but you know, those things are impossible to measure. So if I were simply to say, can I measure the effectiveness of my events 
uh, strategy by looking at the number of leads added to the pipeline, I think many of us would say, well, we're spending too much money on events if that's the KPI. But we all know that there is a lot more to this than just that single KPI. Now, again, to your to your point earlier, if I'm going back to my CFO, that may well be the thing I focus on, right? It may well be that's the thing I'm trying to optimize for. But if I'm really in my heart of hearts trying to think about what is the best thing I can do for this brand, for this entity, in order to help us in the short, medium, and long-term drive sales, I know that I'm not including an awful lot of the benefit if I'm only focusing on pipeline. So sometimes, you know, I do think one, one way through this is to think about proxy measures that we can use instead. And one of the things that I, I've done previously at a company was to think about, you know, who is our, you know, working more generally with the sales organization, who are our target clients? Who are we going to go after in the next 12, 24 months? And then within those, doing some analyses of who are the people who are most influential in the decision-making process around, you know, signing us up as a, as a, as a client. Sorry, something up as a as a provider, um, and then we got you know we would build a list of their names. We would do that sort of account based marketing modeling to understand who was there, and then we would measure the effectiveness of our events by how many of those people did we see. We, we would tier them: tier one people of the decision makers, tier two other people who might well influence the decision makers, and so on. And we would you know at a very simple level give ten points to every tier one person, five points to every tier two person, and then we could actually score an event against an event by the number of influencers, important people in the decision making process at our target clients we actually met. And what that allowed us to do was a couple of things. First of all, year on year, we could look at two events, and if my budget was reduced, I could say, well, I could have I, last year I did event A and event B. Let's look at the scores now. I'm only going to do event A because I don't have the money. Um, but also part B, it was like, where do we want to send our salespeople? You know, which of the, you know, given if there's a clash between two events or there's a clash between an event and a client meeting, you know, what should I, how can I begin to sort of rank these events by order? It allowed us to do that. And it was, it was clear that it wasn't a direct line to revenue, but nevertheless, I think intuitively when we, when we worked through this, everyone kind of got the idea that this was a very sensible measure that didn't exactly track revenue, but certainly tracked some of those more immeasurable things we were trying to talk about. We are getting in front of the people we care about. That's, I mean, and then you, you actually did put some data behind it, right? You did, you did some scoring, right? In your... Right. So we had to think about the data we were trying, you know, we, again, it was taking a step back and thinking about what are we trying to measure? What are, you know, and, and how can we build a measure which is, which is a bit broader than simply the sort of hard leads into the pipeline? I'm not, again, I'll never ever say it leads into the pipeline isn't important. Of course it is, but it's a short-term, often a short-term measure versus those medium and long-term measures that we need to think about. The other thing I really liked about that measure, by the way, is it's extremely practical to measure, right? It's, it's a very straightforward and easy thing for us to measure. So we, we also weren't finding we were then spending weeks and weeks and weeks after each event trying to build the modeling that we needed to build. You know, we would normally get a list of attendees or a list of people who came to our booth or whatever it would be. And we could pretty much do this scoring once we'd done that tiering process I described earlier. We could do this scoring in a couple of hours, which was which is, you know, it meant people weren't sort of you know, back at their desk just plowing through spreadsheets in order to try and produce some measures that we none of us really believed anyway. It was a quick, painless way of, of ranking events. And, and, and that felt like a very useful way for people to spend their time to actually give us something useful. Well, it's actually giving you direction. It's giving you yeah. stuff. It's allowing yeah, you to then, 
as you're forecasting out mm. your spending in the next year, yep. it actually gives you some direction, focus. Yes, absolutely. Tell me, tell me a little bit, you know, when we were talking before, you had this concept of experimentation versus attribution. <laughs> yes. what, what that is, and, and I, I think you've been kind of alluding and getting to it with the stories here, which have been very helpful. But what do you mean by experimentation versus Yeah, sure. I, 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 experimentation, I think, has a long history in marketing. And, and, and I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything particularly new here, but sort of tapping into that long thread. And yeah, for me, this goes all the way back to beginning of the 20th century, you know, the famous quote by John Wanamaker, the New York um, sort of businessman about this idea of something like, you know, I, I know half of my advertising is working. I just don't know which half is working. Right. <laughs> um, you know, that, that age old quote that we've all heard. And, and really, I think the history of marketing over the last kind of 100, 125 years has really been sort of chipping away at that. And we know that in the in the sort of, you know, the, the, the 80s and 90s, we began to have things like Mosaic that allowed us to do some kind of zip code level targeting. And we had ads running on the East Coast and the West Coast. So you could compare different audience reactions and so on and so on and so on. So there's, you know, all those kind of good things. So that's, for me, is, is the basis of experimentation. If you think about why people experiment, it's because they know, back to Wanamaker's point, it's very, very hard to measure the effectiveness of, of a particular piece of advertising unless we can isolate our audience. And that's the heart of experimentation. It's the heart of, the, of, of that kind of scientific method that we can apply to marketing. It's can I create two completely separate audiences? Can I run different treatments or different campaigns or different ways of trying to get them to do what I'd, I'd like them to do um, and, and measure those effectively? Digital has obviously given us a, a great ability to do that. Um, in the sense that we can track an individual and we know, you know which creative you've seen versus which creative I've seen or which campaign you receive versus which campaign I received. I, again, though, I, you know, one, one of the, I think the, 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 the peculiarities of B2B marketing is that we can again continue to overanalyze that and overread that. And, and I think a great example would be, you know, I, many years ago, I won't name the company uh, who, who, who are um, involved in this, but, you know, I was involved in a, in a, in a process to bring in a, a piece of technology in, into a business I was working for. And, you know, I, we, we did a, a three-way or four-way comparison between three or four different vendors. We, we picked the vendor we liked the best, we felt was the best fit for the company. And at that point, I went into a process of trying to get budgetary approval, of getting some you know, IT security involvement and getting their checking, getting you know, KYC and AML and all that kind of stuff to make sure that we were working with a vendor we liked and uh, you know, understanding what our training position would be. And so from the point where I'd actually in my head made the decision through to the point where we actually signed the contract, I think it was about five months or something like that. And it was nothing to do with decision-making. It was to do with all those very boring processes that need to happen within a company in order to approve the spend of quite a lot of money to bring one of these people in. And I remember we went for lunch or something with with the vendor, you know, once we'd signed and everything was done. And they said, you know, we, we, we're building some attribution modeling capability. And we think it was these ads that made you kind of finally make the decision for us or this marketing campaign or this material, this content. Um, but actually, we'd made the decision three months beforehand, because but it just completely not registered the fact that there was these long processes that needed to happen internally before we could make the decision. And I think, what, why do I, why have I brought that up and why do I raise it? Because it kind of takes the, it shed some light on the point that decision-making is, is not a 100% marketing-driven strategy, right? It's, it's, there are a lot of things that need to happen as well as the decision that this is the right product for us. 
But the, the, the way that attribution was being used just assumed that the only thing that was driving the timeline for the decision was marketing materials, which it clearly wasn't, right? There was clearly a huge amount more to it than that. Um, so, you know, again, experimentation, they, you know, during that process, they, this company was experimenting with different materials and different creative and, and different content. But by that point, it was all fairly meaningless to me. I'd already made my decision. I was now just going through bureaucracy to get to that point. And so, you know, experimentation, again, hugely important, but can be, um, you know, over um, engineered to, or, or over analyzed to kind of drive you to the, to the right decision, which never means you should stop experimenting. Of course, you need to continue experimenting. I think that, that's the most important thing, but similar kind of issue around attribution, it can be, it can be overthought through. Now, as soon as you recognize that, you can take a step back and think a little bit more about your attribution, about your experimentation strategy and think about the types of materials and the types of content and the types of things you want to do. But recognizing that these may not be the only decision making points that, that, that are um, influencing the, the buyer to make their decision. Does that make sense? Interesting how <laughs> how. As a marketer, right? Yeah. You had another marketer because you were buying into your marketing, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Talking to you yeah. as a buyer about what they thought influenced you. hundred percent. You know what? What's interesting about that, just at a surface level, mm -hmm. is that it's never about one piece, mm -hmm. right? It's you know, I I just had a uh, a podcast recording with. A gentleman that uh, runs a marketing attribution company, okay. the company, and he said on average across their entire client base, mm -hmm. it's 192 days from the first touch point to a deal closed, yep. with 32 different touch points okay. that happen. Yep, and you know that's a six month process, and that's that's pretty actually quick, yep. right? Because there's a lot of processes that take nine months uh, to yep. a year. Absolutely, yeah, right. So ever pinpointed that there's one you know, one piece of content mm -hmm. or something that did that. Um, it's really the volume of content. Mm -hmm. And we talked to him about the type of content as well, mm -hmm. right? Because like the ads and things like that, the ads only make sense once you've gotten yourself into the point where I need to make a decision. But a majority of B2B buying, mm -hmm. we're talking to audiences that aren't in the buying process, mm -hmm at that moment because the, by the time they are in the mode to buy mm -hmm. they've already done all the research before they ever talk to anybody i i, I think that's an extremely good point extremely good point and one, and one of the you know one of the things i often have discussions with when i get cold called by a salesperson is you know great to speak to you technology sounds interesting it, you know we're in march right my budget is locked down for the year you know, maybe we can speak in the fall and you, you know, and, and we can discuss further and you can help me kind of build a case in order to put budget in for the next year. Right. But this is one of the other sort of differences, I think, between B2B and B2C. And I was I was laugh sort of slightly when I, when I say this, but I think we are much more careful as buyers in a B2B context than we are in a B2C context. I've bought a lot more rubbish as a, as a B2C buyer where I've just clicked on something and thought, oh, that looks fun. I'm just going to go and do that with no kind right. of oversight at all. Right. Whereas B2B, you know, I may not even be able to consider thinking about whether I've got the money for another six to nine months. And then I go through a massive process of pulling together an entire budget. And in that, I'm trying to think about what new tech do I want to bring in? What do I want to upgrade? What do I want to increase the, the, the number of seats of? whatever it may be so so you i mean your, your point is exactly right the, the, the buying process could not only be much longer it may not even start for like nine months because i need to get the budget pre-approved before i can even consider it but 
during that time, mm. those companies to you as a buyer mm. have the ability to build their reputation, absolutely trust with you. Yep. Right now we're getting into the importance of not product marketing, but thought leadership marketing. Yep. Right. And so tell me a little bit about, you know, I'm actually going to ask you a question here and I ask everybody. Okay. Podcast, all right. So you're not the first one to get. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, and I like data points too. So I'm going to actually ask you to rate something. Okay. If, if you could rate the importance of content. Mm-hmm to marketing a company, to the mm-hmm. overall growth and success of the company, where mm-hmm. one's not important at all, 10 is vital. Mm-hmm. How would you rate content and why? So I'm going to give you an answer. Uh, I, my answer would be 10. Um, okay. But I, I let, me, let me caveat that by most of the companies that I've worked for, content has been their business or a very major part of their business. One actually sold content to financial services companies and the other two through used content to grow their brand and to educate their market. Uh, and so I think in both, in, in all three cases, um, you know, it, the content has been absolutely p- pivotal, absolutely central, absolutely vital. And I use content in a, in a broad way. I mean, there was one particular company I worked for where, you know, a huge part of their, um, they were a first mover in a, in, a, in a market and a huge part of what they therefore needed to do was to educate the market around the, 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 the product they were trying to sell. The, you know, it wasn't like they were an entrant where there were already two or three players so the market was well prepared and well understood. It was, let's create a new market. So there, if we include education as content, which it clearly is, you know, that's, that was a massively important piece of it. Now, one of the interesting things about, I think, education as content is, um it wasn't necessarily only targeted at customers. It was targeted, or potential customers, it was targeted at every possible player, even if we knew that only 10% of those were going to become customers, because we needed to educate everyone in the market. We know the market is fluid. We know people move around the market. We know people change. And therefore, educating everyone was a hugely vital, a vitally important part to that. Another company I worked for, you know, was was um, uh, the underdog in a in a in a market dominated by two or three very large players, um, and for them, market was brand differentiation. It was it was you know, we put a huge amount of work into thinking about what was the brand difference between this company and and the two major gorillas, you know, in, in the market, uh, and then how do we how do we produce our content and how do we structure our content and tailor our content to really hammer home that brand differentiation between this business. So in all cases, the content, you know, has, has been absolutely pivotal, that's essential. And, and I would expand that these days in a, in a major way to include video content and audio content and, and not just the written word. I think it's all, you know, it's all very much the, the medium and the message we should dis, disentangle at this point. <laughs> so I have another follow on question to that. Yeah. And that is the more and more that I interview folks like you, CMOs. Yeah. And, and I ask them about their job and their priorities mm-hmm. and what they focus on. Mm-hmm. What emerges here is kind of a, a, a through line, a thread mm-hmm. that runs through all of that. And that the brand, the trust, the expertise that lives at the brand level, but then translates down to are our salespeople then seen as trusted advisors because nobody wants to be sold to. They want to be advised. They want Absolutely. to be taught, yep. right? Comes through that content. Yep. So therefore, and there's, there's actual studies that say that 
before somebody decides they're going to put you on the consideration list, uh-huh. even before they even decide and you really know what you do, uh-huh. they have to respect you uh-huh. as a brand. Uh-huh. Right? So I'm just asking you, what is your opinion about that? <laughs> I, I, I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And, and, and I think one way into that is the most of the companies I've worked for uh, as CMO, you know, one of the things I have really focused on very quickly, which I think, I think a lot of companies, you know, are waking up to, but historically perhaps hadn't done as well as they should do was internal communications as a mechanism for teaching the brand story to every single employee in a business. And again, you know, very much focused on, on, on B2B. I think it can be, it can be different in a B2C environment. But in a B2B environment, I am absolutely clear that anything I do as a marketer can either be completely um, eclipsed by the performance of a brilliant salesperson in a one-to-one meeting or in a context like that, or can be completely undone by a terrible salesperson in that context, right? (laughs) And and so your words... I, I think we're absolutely right that you, you what you're really going for is this notion of trusted advisor. And if you can if you can earn that brand attribute, you know, you really have done at least 50% of the work you need to do in order to kind of build the brand, which is gonna, which is gonna grow the company. But I, you know, I I always start with, you know, in a in a new role, one of the things I really focus on is, you know, can we have a brand, you know, what is the brand story, right? Can we clearly articulate what our brand story is, what our brand differentiation is, you know, why we exist versus other competitors in this field or why we are bringing this new market, you know, to the world's attention. And then number two is, is trying my best to ensure that every single person in the company can articulate that. And, you know, for, for many people in the company, if they can articulate a sort of, you know, five sentence, six sentence brand story, that's all they need to do, obviously, as long as they know who to who to refer the person to next if they want more detail. For sales organizations, I think you, you have to go a lot deeper than that. And so that, and so that's really, really pivotal. Uh, you know, it, it is you know, ultimately everything we do is going to be um, make, made, or, made or broken by the face-to-face meetings that our sales organizations are having. And that's really where we therefore put, need to put a huge amount of our marketing effort. I do think it's something which I've seen companies focus on way too little. Um, Just a little anecdote. Years ago, um, many years ago, I worked for a consultancy that worked with supermarkets a lot. It it was probably the most B2C type marketing I've ever done. And one of the um, supermarkets we were working with had, had rolled out a home delivery service. Um, and they were, you know, you, you'd order online and your food would be delivered to the house. And, and, you know, one of the attributes of this was, you know, for most people, it would be delivered to your doorstep. But, you know, if you were elderly or vulnerable or, or, or you know, had some other, you know, reason why, the driver would, would carry your shopping into the kitchen and, and, and put it on your, on your table for you. And he, in this, you know, the CMO of the, of the supermarket was saying something along the lines of, you know, it both thrills me and terrifies me that we're going to have our staff members walking into the heart of these people's houses, into their kitchens, right? Because if it's a good encounter, we will never get a better brand uh, attribute than, than the, the, the conversation that the driver has with the, with the shopper. Right. If it's bad, you know, they will never shop with us again. And we are relying, you know, all these millions and millions of dollars we're spending on marketing will be made or broken by a guy who drives a van walking into someone's house. Now, I, I just thought I learned so much from that. I thought it was one of the most important things I ever heard a marketer ever say, because it, it, it was a real kind of humble 
knew that you know this great marketing machine and all the agencies they use and the money they spent on on the medium and how to get this stuff out would be completely undone by someone who probably earned not far off minimum wage driving a van uh you know and and it shows <laughs> the power of personal connection versus you know everything we think we can do as marketers now, so, you know, my, my reaction to that is great. We should be, A, we should pay these guys an awful lot more money. Uh, and number two is, is we should put a huge amount of effort into making sure that they feel positive about the company they work for. Because if they feel positive, that will be exuded to the customer. Whereas that's the, that's the bigger, job, absolutely. That's, that's the bigger point, right? If you focus internally on the employees, yeah. they have a tremendous impact. A huge but, impact, absolutely. I want to have time yeah, to ask you the last question, <laughs> yeah. which is we've covered a lot of territory here. Yeah. If there was one snippet of advice mm -hmm. that you could give to the audience here as a takeaway, what would yeah. it be? Great question. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, I, I, I'm probably going to give a very unhelpful answer, but but nevertheless, the, the thing I always advise people to do, uh, you know, marketers who I work with kind of coming up through the ranks is, is at all times take a step back and don't get lost in the weeds of what you're doing. Think about the overall objective of what you as a business are trying to achieve. And then tailor your marketing strategies for that. And, and in a way, we're coming back full circle, back to the, the question about attribution, you know. Um, as a, you know, in a, in a B2B business, uh, when I'm, as I'm trying to drive customers, I'm trying to drive pipeline, I'm trying to drive growth in the business. The thing I need to focus on is not always how many clicks on these emails, how many, what's the delivery rate, all those kind of things. It's what is the message I'm trying to get across? How am I going to get people to understand what my business is? You know, what is, what is the message? What is the medium? What am I trying to drive? And then, you know, what are the myriad ways I can get that across? And there's a real wood for the trees thing I often see with, with some marketers is they're so focused on the click rate that they forget the, the context of what they're trying to achieve. And if they can't raise the click rate, maybe we try a different message. Maybe we try a different medium. Maybe we try to reach these people in a different way. It doesn't really matter as long as we're getting that kind of that message across. That's what we really need to focus on. And so I think my, my one piece of advice to, to sum it all up would be, you know, take time to step back and think about what marketing is doing within the context of a business. Every business is different. Every organization is different. Every, every um, handoff between sales and marketing is different. And, and as a marketer, I think that, that the core job is often just to sit back, look at the organization and think, what is my place within this? What is marketing trying to do within this structure, within this market, within this audience? And then tailor what you do for that. And it's it sounds obvious and it sounds easy. And I'm sure everyone listening will say, of course, that's that's what we all do. But you do see an awful lot of, of you know people who are just fixated on the one or two or three measures that they're being asked to look at, as opposed to what can I do for this organization? Uh, and, and we can just get lost in the sea of marketing tactics and, and sure. all sorts of things. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this. Absolute if, pleasure. If people had follow-up questions, would LinkedIn be the best place that they would absolutely. get a hold of you? Absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm very happy to discuss, very happy to talk to people. Uh, in fact, I'd love to. I, I, I love this stuff. So I'm very, very happy to talk to anyone about it. Well, fantastic. Well, again, thank you for being on. And we really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve.